Turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew chapter 16. We have jumped chapters. I always feel like it's a little bit of a milestone when we make it from one chapter to the next. So we can celebrate here headed into the month of July that we have crossed over into a different chapter. Chapter 16. This is an important chapter in Matthew. Um, In the next couple of weeks, just to kind of give you an idea of where we're going, we're going to be seeing next week the fact that the event of when Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. Week after that, we're going to be looking at Jesus teaching very explicitly about his death and resurrection. And then the week after that, as we're heading into Kids Club week, uh, we're going to be looking at the passage where Jesus instructs his disciples to take up their cross and follow him. And so there's a lot of uh, really important teaching that's happening here during the month of July. This morning, we're looking at verses 5 to 12. We're, we're actually looking at the first, first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 16. Um, and that's good. I put it into the PowerPoint correctly. We're going to be starting at the tail end of chapter 15. I'm not going to really unpack this. This is a similar miracle to one that Jesus has already done. So I'm going to read it. And that's going to set the context for the encounter that's going to come with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and then with the disciples afterwards. We're going to be focusing in on those encounters. But just to set the context, this comes right after he basically performs the same miracle he's already performed. He fed 5,000. And in both, tech, in both cases, where it's the 5,000 or the 4,000, it says besides women and children. So it's a little bit of a misleading number. It's counting the men, 5,000 men, 4,000 men, besides the women and the children. You figure there's, for a, many of those men, a wife that's along for the ride, and for many of those men, one or two or more children who are along for the ride. And you start to add those numbers up, and you realize that the feeding of the 5,000 was probably closer to 10, if not over 10,000. And the feeding of the 4,000, again, was probably closer to 10, if not over 10,000. So these are tens of thousands of people that have been fed miraculously, supernaturally by Jesus Christ. So look with me here, Matthew chapter 15, verses 32, and then we'll, we'll read on into chapter 16. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now for three days. <clears throat> Excuse me. They have been with me now for three days, and they have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks... He broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were 4,000 men, besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan, also sometimes called Magdala from which Mary Magdalene came from. That, her last name wasn't actually Magdalene. It's a reference to where she's from. That's where they're headed. And they're going to go on up north to Caesarea Philippi in chapter 16. Chapter 16, And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to him, and to test him they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. 
as though the second miracle of feeding over 10,000 people wasn't sufficient. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Now remember, they have just left a miracle in which Jesus fed over 10,000 people. Short-term memory, short-term memory. (laughs) They reach over to the other side, Magdala, okay, verse 6, and and verse 5, and they've forgotten to bring any bread. And, And Jesus is still pondering this encounter with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they're talking about bread, and Jesus says to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of of this, said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Which was 12. Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Which was seven. How is it that you fail to understand that I didn't speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Let's bow for a word of prayer. God, we love you and we thank you so much your love for us. We sang just a few minutes ago, Lord, that no, no scheme of man can pluck us from your hand. And we know, Father, that you love us and that you do hold us in our hand. And the only thing that really prevents us from walking closely with you is no power of hell, no scheme of man. It's us, Lord, and our forgetfulness of your mercy and your grace. The thing that keeps us from walking closely with you, from trusting more fully in you, isn't the pressures of this world or the temptations of Satan. It's just our own short-term memory. So, Father, as we look at your word this morning, we pray, God, that you would remind us again of your love, of your goodness, of your mercy, of your compassion, of your grace. We pray, God, that you would redirect our focus once again to your Son, to his glory, to his splendor, We pray, God, that you would remind us once again this morning of all that is there for us in Christ. And we pray, God, that we would draw near to you, to the true you, and not to the false teaching that is still so very prevalent in this world. Open our eyes to understand what you're saying to us in this text this morning, Lord. We pray, God, that your spirit would illuminate the passage before us, that you would give us true understanding and that you would strengthen the faith that is in us to trust more fully in you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Henry Mariasen struggled with epileptic seizures. 
A portion of his brain was significantly damaged, and as a result, he often suffered through very debilitating seizures, which prohibited him from keeping a full-time job. It prohibited him from engaging in normal day-to-day activity. He was suffering seizures at an alarming rate, and he went in and he visited with the neurosurgeons, and they took scans of his brain, and they looked at different images of his brain, and they concluded, and this is in 1953, that the region of his brain that was afflicting him, that was leading to all of these seizures, was the hippocampus. And so they determined, although it was a very untried, very risky procedure, something that had never been done before, they determined that what they would try to do to alleviate his suffering of these epileptic seizures is that they would go into his brain and remove his hippocampus, completely remove it. The theory was that the hippocampus was a sort of a vestige, a a leftover from the days of evolution, that it wasn't something that God had uniquely designed you to require, and They weren't sure what it did, and so they theorized that maybe he didn't even need it at all. And so they put Henry Moriason to sleep on the table, but not they didn't put him fully out. You have to be awake for these types of surgeries, and so he was heavily sedated, but talking as they went into his brain, and slowly but surely over the course of about 45 minutes, removed both sections of his hippocampus the whole while he was talking. He talked, he answered all of their questions, he responded to everything they were saying, and as soon as they were done removing those sections of his brain, they immediately put him to sleep, put him down, sewed him back together, and wheeled him into recovery, where he awoke a few hours later, having no knowledge of what he was doing there in the recovery room. Nurses came in, they explained it to him, you had a major significant brain injury and we remove sections of your brain and it is natural and normal and to be expected that there should be some short-term amnesia it will pass to which he asked two minutes later what am i doing here why why am i in the recovery room to which they explained it to him again and two minutes later he asked the same question again and again Famous patient, patient H.M., as he was known until 2008 when he passed away, and his identity was revealed as Henry Moriason. Most extraordinary thing happened to him as he lay on that operating table. The doctors removed a section of the brain, the hippocampus, which is now understood to be directly responsible for transferring your short-term memory, your experiences, your day-to-day life, from the way you experience it, into your long-term memory. And there's no way to get from the short-term, what happened five minutes ago, what happened ten minutes ago, to you now can recall what happened yesterday or a week ago. There's no way to make that jump if you don't have that section of your brain working correctly. Now, we've all heard the expression, ignorance is bliss. And for Henry Moriason, He never feared for anything because he never remembered anything longer than two to five minutes prior. He was never concerned because he never fully grasped where he was. And as a result of this tragic surgery and as a result of different different lawsuits that were engaged in on his behalf by his family members, Henry Moriason became famous patient HM 
and he became a test subject for MIT, and the rest of his days were lived out being provided for uh, generously by MIT as they ran numerous memory experiments upon him. In fact, they ran experiments on his memory all day, every day, and you might think that would get a little old and boring and tedious, but it really doesn't for a man who can't remember anything that happened more than two minutes ago. It was always new. And sometimes as the doctors were compiling their data and uh, trying to go over and analyze some of the results of their experiments to keep him occupied, they would give him a crossword puzzle, and he loved crossword puzzles, and he would work on the crossword puzzle. And then after a while, he'd say, okay, I'm finished with this one, and they would just erase it and give it right back to him, and he would take it and just start doing it all over again. They used the same crossword puzzle over and over again until they had erased it so many times that they were erasing through the paper. And you might think, that's cruel, but again, it was always new to him. He never remembered it. He was never worried about getting a job. He was never worried about paying his bills. He was never worried about what he would do tomorrow or tonight, or he was never really concerned about what happened just a few minutes ago. He was always in the immediate now the ultimate existential, no care for the future, no concern for the past. I'm just living in the moment. And he was provided for. He was taken care of. He had the world's worst attention deficit disorder, obviously. You can't remember what you started to do two minutes ago. You can't remember how to finish it right now in this moment. So he could never hold down a job. He could never really carry on meaningful conversations with family. But he was never bothered by it. Now, for some of us, you might be thinking, you know, I've had a hard life. I feel guilt over things that I've done in the past. I'm worried over what I'm going to do to take care of my situation tomorrow. And for some of us, you're thinking it would be nice, maybe, to live in ignorance. After all, isn't ignorance bliss? I want you to understand the real tragedy, though, of Henry Moriason. Though he never struggled with stress though he was never fearful for what was about to happen, he never experienced the deeper joys of being married, of raising a family, of connecting with loved ones. He could never grow spiritually. He could never develop long, complex, philosophical thoughts. Henry Moriason was locked in a permanent two-minute time loop from the moment he was 27 the moment he passed away at the age of 80. Sure, he did not have the pain of, of stress and heartache, but he didn't have the joy of a developed, mature, aged life, stuck permanently at 27, not even aware that almost 50 years had gone by. Memory is important to how we grow and mature. The disciples, the 12 apostles that are walking with Jesus, have no neurological deficit. Their hippocampuses are in perfect functioning order. And yet, we encountered them here in Matthew 15 as though they don't have perfectly normal functioning hippocampuses. And their response to Christ is a bit perplexing. 
It says in Matthew chapter 16, verse 5, when the disciples reached the other side, now they had jumped in a boat to go over to Magda. And as they're going over to the other side, they, they get over there and they're realizing that they don't have any food. I don't know what they did with the seven baskets of food that they collected. They probably left them there to continue to feed the poor. I'm not sure. But for whatever reason, they didn't take all the leftovers with them. So they sail over to the other side. And when they get over there, they're like, what are we going to eat? And they begin to discuss it. You know, we don't have any food. Well, what are you, do, do you have any money? I'm broke, man. I've got nothing. Well, you know, it's late. And then all the shops and all the stores and the markets are closed. Where are we going to go to get food? And immediately you're thinking, guys, you're with Jesus, you just fed over 10,000 people on just a few pieces of bread. Why are you stressing? And yet they are. Where are we going to eat? Jesus is still thinking of his encounter with the Pharisees that he had had just before they jumped in the boat. And as he's pondering real danger, real problems, spiritual danger, false teaching, they're like, hmm, we need to eat some food. We're hungry. And Jesus' statement to them is sort of ignoring, ignoring their sort of childish concerns. He speaks to the deeper spiritual issues that are going to threaten them. And he says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He uses a metaphor. He uses it as a way to give us an analogy of what false teaching looks like. Leaven being the substance that you sow into bread dough. Leaven being the substance that you use, like yeast. It causes the bread to rise. It's how you make bread. It unleashes a chemical reaction with the wheat. When you sow it into the dough, it gives it that fluffy, airy, sort of non-heavy, sort of, you know, wonderful, delightful bread taste. You use yeast, and it immediately begins a process. Once you work just a little bit of yeast into the flour, it immediately begins a chemical process where it completely permeates the flour. It completely infects and takes over the flour to create that fluffy dough of bread. Jesus' understanding that the false teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees has the capacity in even the smallest amounts to be very, very dangerous and very, very hazardous to the disciples makes the statement, watch out for those guys. Watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But the disciples don't even hear that. Jesus says leaven, we're thinking bread, we're hungry. And immediately they start to say, hmm, yeah, we don't really have any bread. It would be sort of like this. Me and my wife are driving down the road and we're going out onto this bridge and suddenly I observe that the bridge is out, a section has fallen, and I say to my wife, the bridge is out. We're in trouble. We need to do something. And I'm automatically going for the break. And my wife's response is, I can't remember if I locked the door or not. I'm, I'm kind of worried about whether or not I remember to lock the front door. Now, Shanti would never say that. But let me paint it from the other perspective so that you don't think I'm a chauvinist. It would be like us driving down the road and we come to a bridge in which the bridge is out. And Shanti says, the bridge is out. Hit the brakes. And I'm like... GPS says it's fine. I don't know what the problem here is. You know, we just keep on going. Okay, now that's the man's response, all right? So we're equally offending everyone today. Nobody needs to feel singled out. The point being that if we encounter danger, the immediate response is to take the danger seriously and to stop. Whether the woman ignores it or whether the man ignores it, I'm, I'm not getting into gender discussions today. The point is when you hear the warning, when you hear 
the threat is real, you need to take immediate action. Their response is totally nonsensical. He's just had this altercation with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He says, guys, beware. It's a strong admonition. He makes the statement, look with me, verse 6, watch. Now, both of these verbs, watch and beware, are in the strongest possible verb tense. They're in the imperative. Jesus is urging them, watch, pay attention to this, and beware of it, which is a negative term. Be wary of it. Watch out for it. It's bad. Don't get near it. He says this to them, and he says, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The bridge is out. Pay attention. Their response we brought no bread. We've got nothing to eat. So to grab their attention and to refocus them on the task at hand, the teaching at hand, Jesus makes the statement in verse 8, O oh, you of little faith. Now notice what he says. He calls their faith small because he just fed 10,000 people. O oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing amongst yourselves the fact that you have no bread? What is the purpose of this conversation? Why is this the most important thing for you to be talking about right now? Verse 9, do, don't, excuse me, do you not yet perceive? The word is to perceive, to understand, to grasp, to comprehend, to see what's coming, to grasp it, to understand it, to allow it to inform your perspective. Do you not yet perceive now look at, the, look at the next verse very carefully. Their ability, now there's a chain here. Little faith, understanding, perception, memory. Follow what he says. Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000? which was like probably more than 10,000. It says 5,000 men besides women and children. And how many baskets you gathered? You don't have to look back, I'll tell you. They gathered 12 baskets full of food. Started off with just a couple of fish and just a couple of pieces of bread. They broke it up. They started passing it out. Jesus prayed. Everyone gets filled. They're like, let's pick up the leftovers. Let's not be wasteful. They pick up the leftovers. They end up with 12 baskets. They end up with more food after the miracle left over after 10,000 people have been filled and are satisfied. They have more food afterwards than what they started. And it happens a second time. 4,000 people, that's the men, besides women and children, probably over 10,000 people. We're talking at this point, there's probably some overlap here in this crowd. It's the same general region. We couldn't say definitively that he's fed a combined total of over 20,000 people because there is some overlap, but it's entirely possible that Jesus fed over 20,000 people at this point. He says, remember the 4,000, by which he means more than 10 or around 10. And how many loaves did we pick up there? Or, or sorry, how many baskets did we pick up there? We picked up seven. Again, more food collected after the miracle than at the start of the miracle. This just happened. You have small faith. You have small faith because you do not understand. You do not understand because you do not perceive. Your perception is not working. 
And the tool Jesus points to to correct perception, to correct understanding, and to enlarge our faith is our memory. Don't you remember the two miracles I just worked? How is it, verse 11, that you fail to understand that I'm not speaking about bread? Beware the leaven of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Now, how often does this happen to us? God does something great in our life. He provides. He meets a need. He's there for us. We can step back and we can say, I know beyond all shadow of a doubt that that was God. God was there. I was broken. I was hurting. I was experiencing a very real need in my life, and I needed him to meet me there. I needed him to meet that need, and he did. Fast forward a couple of minutes, maybe an hour, maybe a day, maybe a week. Another issue arises. How many of us go immediately into panic mode? Oh, please, God, help me out here. It's not wrong to call upon God and ask him to meet your needs, but how many of us, we go from one miracle, one victory, one triumph, to the next not confident expectation that God is going to get us through it. We go from one miracle, one triumph, one victory, to the next uncertainty and the next doubting of God. If that's you, don't feel bad. Eleven of the greatest saints in the history of Christendom had it way worse, I'm willing to bet, than any of us in this room ever had it. They were with Jesus in the boat. I want you to stop and think for a second. If we are so quick to forget what God has done, then we will be easily influenced by things that will draw us away from the Lord. Jesus is trying to tell these guys something. They have basically abandoned a historical knowledge of what just happened. They are now ahistorical, existential, right now, in the moment. I'm only living for right now kind of discipleship. This is what they've sort of jumped into. They've forgotten the past works. They've immediately forgotten the past miracles. And they, as a result of that, become concerned with very basic needs, which distracts them from understanding what Jesus is trying to tell them, which is deeper. It's further. We sing a song sometimes, Oceans, and we say, you know, we want the Lord to take us out where we can't reach. We want our faith to take us deeper and further beyond where we can walk. Trust in God, confidence in God, builds upon a remembrance and a reflection of his mercy and his grace in your life. But if you are so quick to forget, 
you will find yourself repeating the same basic lessons over and over again. Jesus wants to talk about false teaching. And because they have already forgotten the miracle he just worked, he ends up talking about the fact that he just worked the miracle. He wants to warn them about real spiritual danger that is coming, but because they have forgotten what just passed, he has to remind them of that. So if we're going to go deeper in our faith, the first thing we have to do as Christians, as brothers and sisters, we've got to develop the spiritual discipline of remembering, of reminding ourselves, of being grateful for what has happened, of being grateful for what God has done in the past, being grateful for the ways that he has delivered us. That's how we go further in our faith. Now notice here, the first thing is this. We have to remember what God has done to go deeper in our walk with him. And the second thing, we have to be careful of those who presume to speak for God, but do not. We can be led astray by a short-term memory, and we can be led astray by false teaching. A number of years ago, I read through the Bible. I wanted to go through it quickly. I normally read like a series of chapters per day, like a chapter here, a chapter Old Testament, a chapter New Testament, a section from the Proverbs, Psalms. You know, I'm on this Bible reading plan that takes me through the whole Bible in a year. But a couple of years ago, I decided I wanted to blow through it quickly and just jot down some notes on some recurring themes that popped up from time to time. So I was reading like five, six chapters in a row, just going from Genesis all the way to Revelation and just marking down themes and references to those themes. You know, one of the most recurring, and I would say probably one of the most dominant themes in the scriptures, false prophets, read about it in Jeremiah just a little while ago. False prophets, false teachers. God is concerned to do two things. Number one, to speak to us through the word. And he is also concerned in speaking to us through the word to be wary, to be watchful, and to be alert and attentive to the fact that there are lots of people who presume to speak on behalf of God, but do not actually speak according to his word. They would deceive us. And that makes perfect sense. If you believe in a real God who loves you and who sent his son to die on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins and you take him seriously, one of the things that he says is that there is a very real Satan who is out there. He is the father of lies. He is the father of all deception. And one of the things that he wants to do in your life is he wants to trick you. He wants to deceive you. And it's not obvious. Satan's not going to show up in your life like a red dragon with seven heads, like you might read about in Revelation. and be like, listen to me. And we'd be like, oh yeah, that's cool. I'll listen to the red dragon with seven heads. It never works out that way because he knows you're not going to buy into that. The obvious doesn't fool anyone. It's the subtle. The obvious doesn't fool anyone. It's the subtle. Now, we're talking first century Israel. We're talking first century Jerusalem. We got these two groups of religious hotshots. You got the Sadducees and you got the Pharisees. And everybody thinks that they know what's going on with the scriptures. Everybody thinks that these guys are the definitive authority on spirituality and having a true relationship with God. Jesus is saying, not so fast. If you go back to the second part of the passage, which is really the first part, look in chapter 16, very beginning of the chapter, 
verse 1, the Pharisees and the Sadducees came. Now, immediately you read that sentence, and for us here in the 21st century reading that, okay, so these two religious groups got together and came to ask Jesus some questions. Not so fast. These two religious groups don't go together. They are not friendly with each other. They're actually hostile to each other. They have different divergent views of interpreting the scriptures. you got the Pharisees, and these guys are your strict legalists. They believe that you actually can keep the law. They've totally missed the point that the law is there only to condemn you, to show you that there's no way you can keep the law. They have deceived themselves into thinking that they can keep the law, and they've added a whole bunch of extra rules to it to try and trick themselves into thinking that they're being really religious and pious. They accept the whole Old Testament, everything from the book of Genesis all the way to the very end, to Malachi, whereas the Sadducees, they only reject, they only accept as authoritative the books of Moses. They reject things like angels, the afterlife, and the resurrection. In fact, we're going to see an encounter that Jesus is going to have with the Sadducees here in a few chapters, which is to say like maybe four or five years from now. But we will encounter it at some point. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection. The Pharisees say there is a resurrection. And angels and demons and all this other stuff. And these two, they go at it. The Pharisees are your ultimate traditionalists. The Sadducees are your modernists. The Pharisees are your ultimate, let's just obey the Bible at all costs, our personal interpretation of the Bible. Whereas the Sadducees are pragmatists. We are in position of authority. This is the Sadducees. Rome likes us. We like Rome. They give us authority. Let's just go along to get along. These groups obviously hate each other. The Pharisees hate the Sadducees because they think they're compromising in order to maintain their political power. The Sadducees hate the Pharisees because they think they're a bunch of stuck-up religious nimby-pimbies who just can't take it easy. And these two are going at it. The fact that you see them together should give you pause. They're not friends. They don't like each other. And they've gotten together to come and test Jesus, which means that if they're together, enemies who hate each other, it can only be because there's a greater enemy that threatens both of them. Verse, chapter 16, verse 1, the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Again, to the best of my knowledge, their hippocampuses are in full functioning working order. They should not be having this problem of transferring short-term memory to long-term memory. They are also aware of the fact that in northern Israel, around the region of Galilee, Jesus is working miracles that defy all human comprehension. These are clearly supernatural miracles. He is fed somewhere in the range of 20,000 people. It's not like this is an isolated event where some guy says, yeah, he fed me supernaturally. And you're like, well, are there any other witnesses? He's like, well, you know, it was kind of a one-on-one thing. It's nothing like that. We've got the whole region of Galilee saying, that guy took nothing and turned it into enough food to feed 20,000 people the size of a small village, and there was more left over afterwards than what he started with. This is not an isolated event. This is not some obscure happening. This is popular. It is widespread. There are thousands and tens of thousands of witnesses, and they come to him, and they say, 
we'd like to see a miracle from you. You've had a good start. We're not meaning to be critical. But we'd like to see something from heaven. Notice what they say. Verse 1, to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. I don't know exactly what they mean by that. I'm assuming on some level that supernaturally creating food out of thin air somehow does not qualify as a heavenly sign in their mind. What they're asking for, that's great, but we want to see some sort of realignment of the stars. Could you make the sun maybe rise in the west and set in the east? That would be cool. Or could you maybe spell out my name up there in the Milky Way? That would be nice too. I mean, who really knows what they're asking for? And at what point do we say, you know what, there's plenty of evidence. It's there. It's obvious. You just don't want to believe. Jesus' response. When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. This is an agricultural economy. These are people that live on subsistence farming. They are able to look at the sky. They're able to give some sort of a guess to what the weather is going to look like. And Jesus is saying, you guys do this. You all do this. You all look out your windows. You all go out your door, stand on your front porch, and look at the sky. You see the clouds rolling in. You're able to understand and interpret the sky and the weather patterns. You're able to guess with some clarity, some degree of certainty as to what the weather is going to look like today. But, the verse 3, you cannot interpret the signs of the times. You cannot interpret the signs of the times. Verse 4, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. I want you now to consider these two groups side by side. Both groups saw the same miracles. Both groups had access to the same man, Jesus. Both groups were able to reflect upon what he had done. To one group, he says, it's right there. It's slapping you in the face. It's right there. You can grasp it, but you're not grasping it because you're evil and you're adulterous. It's there for you to see it with your own two eyes if you would just see it. To the disciples, he says, I want you to look for something that is very hard to see. They get who Jesus is, but because of their short-term memory, he's having to focus on a miracle. For one group, he's saying, I wish you could just see the obvious. For the other group, he's trying to tell them to look for the subtle. I wish you guys could just get it that I'm Jesus, I'm the Messiah, I'm God. And for this group, he's saying, look for the subtle, look for the dangerous, be wary of the small infectiousness of the teaching of these guys. But because they have forgotten, they're not able to focus on that so much as they have to be reminded of what he just did.
Listen, Bridge Baptist Church. There are two things that threaten us. Teaching from people who presume to speak on behalf of God but do not speak the whole counsel of God's word and do not speak from God's word. They will not come to you like seven-headed red dragons from the book of Revelation. They will look really nice. They will smile. They may even wear green polos, khaki pants, with devilishly good looks. (laughs) Now, how am I to interpret that laughter? You know, most of you have known me a long time. You know I'm passionate about this thing. If a man would presume to preach and not quote you book, chapter, verse, this book, what he is saying is not necessarily wrong. In fact, he could be saying a lot of things that are good. He could be saying things that are true. He could be saying things that I could point to and say, look, here, book, chapter, verse. I could identify what he's saying. I could take you to the passages he's referencing. But here's the critical thing. If he's not in the discipline of speaking according to the word, if he himself is not in the discipline of taking you into the word, but he's going to ad lib and quote, even if he's quoting from scripture, it's very dangerous because all the focus is put on him And none of the focus is put upon the book. Jesus is our Lord and Savior. Nice guys who even mean well, like me, could still do a huge disservice to you if they will not direct your gaze to the Word. We live in an age in which we're thinking, let's be pragmatic. Not everyone comes to church with a Bible. Some people are new to the faith. They're not even sure when you quote a passage or you reference an article of scripture, they're not even sure where to find it. As convenient and as pragmatic as it would be for me to throw every verse up here on the screen, as convenient and as pragmatic as it would be for me to just quote you scriptures and not give you the references, wouldn't necessarily be dishonest when I'm saying I'm speaking the word of God, but I'm not letting you have immediate and direct access to the Son for yourself. That's the most subtle danger. And from that, we branch out further, where you've got groups of people who would add to the word of God, and you've got groups of people who would take away from the word of God. Classic Pharisee, classic Sadducee, not preaching the whole counsel of scripture and we ask ourselves sometimes how do these guys get away from it how do they get away with doing these things how do they trick God's people how do God's people get misled it starts off with the nice guy who truly is committed to the Lord but takes pragmatic shortcuts around the scripture making you do the heavy lifting of turning in your Bibles and reading the text for yourselves. And from there, it expands to the Pharisees 
and the Sadducees. People who would add to the word of God and people who would take away from it. Just a little leaven, just a little bit can be dangerous to the entire outcome. We start with a focus on Jesus. And we walk with him in his word. Whatever he says, we need it and we need to remember it. Because what he's going to do tomorrow, this is comprehensive. These are lessons that are building on each other. And he can't take us beyond where we are right now. Which means that if we learn a lesson in here today, but forget it tomorrow, the Lord is just going to come right back to here where we were at today. We can't go deeper if we don't remember. Henry Mariathan was a Christian. Gave his life to the Lord before he underwent his surgery. What isn't often talked about when we talk about patient HM? He's never able to grow deeper in his faith because he had no ability to have long-term memory. But he could still recall things from his childhood that he had memorized, that he had studied. There were still things that he had learned that had stuck in there. And do you know one of the verses he memorized as a child? John 3.16. Jesus says to these guys, You want a sign because you're evil. You don't accept all the signs that have been given, but there's one sign that I will give you, the sign of Jonah. The prophet who selflessly, I say selflessly, it was his sin that got him into the situation, but selflessly told the sailors on the ship headed to Tarshish, throw me overboard. The reason you're all about to die is because of me and my sin. Took all the blame and all the responsibility on himself. They threw him overboard as a dead man, And he was three days in the belly of the great fish. Only to come back from the depths. To go on and complete what the Lord had for him to do. And Jesus' statement to these guys is, you're evil, you're adulterous, you want another sign, I'm going to give you one. Just like Jonah, who threw himself overboard, gave himself up, was three days in the heart of the earth, in the belly of a fish. So the Son of Man will take your sin, all of it, on himself and will give himself up in your place on your behalf. He will allow himself to be thrown overboard by us, crucified on a cross, raised again, conquering over death on the third day. Henry Mariathan couldn't develop new long-term memories, but by the grace of God, he had one memory from a vacation Bible school that he attended as a kid. They didn't call it vacation Bible school back in the early 1900s, but it was basically vacation Bible school, Sunday school, John 3.16. For God so loved the world. That's you personally, your name, whatever it is, you need to know that Jesus had it on his heart and on his mind when he hung on the cross. God so loved you that he gave himself up. 
that whoever should believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. In 2008, Henry Ryerson remembered as he passed into heaven the moment he gave his life to the Lord and every other moment that he had no memory of from the age of 27 to the age of 80. You think, what a cruel existence. How could God let somebody go through that who was a child of God? Because of Henry Moriason and the tragedy that befell him, and he suffered no pain from it, but because of that tragedy that befell him, all kinds of advances in neuroscience and memory and memory loss and memory research have been made because of what happened to, me, to Henry. There is a God. He does love you. Your hippocampus works fine. Let us begin the process of remembering his love and what he did for us on the cross. Let's bow for a word of prayer.